This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. We are going to talk CFL in just a couple of minutes, and it's it's kind of it's kind of a sad thing right now. It appears as though the league is really considering canceling the 2020 season. But we've seen that in college football. We've seen that in university football. Who knows what we're going to see from the National Football League. What they want to do seems seems hard, really hard. You've got too many people, too many moving parts. But in the midst of all of that, think back. We, we had you thinking about Kawhi Leonard's shot and beating Golden State and the Raptors championship. And today they will take on the Brooklyn Nets. And that will be game one of their first-round series. The tip-off is just after 4 o'clock. Raptors aren't making it into prime time at any point in this first round. They eventually will. There will be better series. But Raptors versus Brooklyn shouldn't be that close a series. Shouldn't be all that exciting. And it should be all Raptors all the time. But who could forget Mark Carcassol walking around the streets of Toronto shortly after last year's championship win and running into this story? What's with the plant, man? Where'd you get that? It's a housewarming gift for Kawhi. Oh, I see. He's staying. Does he know this yet? What are you I'm waiting for him. I'm waiting. Have you seen him? I haven't seen him yet. I think he's somewhere in Oakland right now, celebrating his butt off. Well, when you see him, tell him I got a housewarming gift. Tell him I love him. I will. What kind of plant is that? Tell him thank you for the shot. What kind of plant is that? It's a plant for Kawhi. It's a Kawhi plant. It's a Kawhi plant. It's a Kawhi cactus. Have a good night, man. Coactus. Coactus. I like it. It's a Kawhi. It's a plant guy says it's a Coactus. I think plant guy, um, I think he's, I think he's doing well. I think he's having a good night. Let's just put it that way. He showed up at a few places. He was at the parade. Plant guy got famous for a little while. I don't know where he is now, and he definitely wasn't privy to what Kawhi Leonard was actually doing because Kawhi begins the playoffs tonight in the NBA with the Los Angeles Clippers. And who knows? Raptors-Clippers final? What do you think? It's not out of the realm of possibility. It could happen. I don't know if you saw that guy. It doesn't translate well over the radio, but he basically had found a plant in, like, the lobby of a hotel, one of those big ones in the big pots, and that's what he was hauling around. This was not like, oh, I, I bought this pot at a gardening center. Here, I'm looking for Kawhi Leonard to present him with this coactus. No, he was dragging around a thing with roots all over Toronto. It was just part of the celebration. We have that celebration on our minds for sure. You have the potential for the Raptors to make a nice deep playoff run. But a lot of football fans in this country have been hoping that we would see some kind of resolution. Eight-game season, even six-game season in the Canadian Football League. But unlike the NHL and the NBA, they don't have the money for hubs and bubbles and all that it takes to operate that. They had talked about trying to center in a city like maybe Winnipeg or Regina, but it was going to take some financial help, and they haven't been able to secure that. And it looks as though a request for a $30 million loan has been rejected. And so where does that leave the Canadian Football League? Probably not in a very good spot for 2020. Joining us right now is Don Landry, who is a columnist with CFL.ca, to talk about where the CFL does sit. Don, it's great to have you here. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, Mike. Nice to talk to you, too, my friend. 
Well, let's get to the nitty-gritty on this. What does the lack of a $30 million loan mean to the CFL? Well, uh, Matthew Schmitty of uh, TSN has uh, put out a tweet in the last, I guess, about 10 minutes or so, saying that he's already heard that the season has been canceled. He got that through a source, he says, with the Canadian Football League Players Association. So there's no formal announcement from the league. The Board of Governors didn't meet this morning. So if Matthew's uh, information is solid, then there will be no CFL football in 2020. Not at all. Now, that's too bad. There's a lot of CFL fans who were hoping they could salvage something. But football, as we well know, doesn't fit very well. There's no Western Mustangs this year. No, you know, U sports. We've got a lot of NCAA conferences who have already said, nope, not doing it. Who knows what the NFL does. But with the CFL, there seems to be concern beyond just this year. What does this mean for the league overall? Can they just say, okay, no season this year, but don't worry, we'll get right to work on 2021? Or do things kind of root deeper than that? Yeah, they, they can say, um, don't worry, we're going to get to work on 2021. But I'd be surprised if they said, don't worry. I mean, they, they don't have another choice, do they, Mike, except to get to work on 2021 and a survival plan uh, with no money coming in and uh, a situation where without a small season of six games they were proposing and then a road to the Grey Cup, without that, uh, the losses, uh, this is according to a, a story that was posted by Canadian Press a while ago, the losses will be higher, somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to $80 million, whereas with the loan and a truncated season, they would still have had losses, but smaller ones. So, it's a bigger problem. Um, they had a plan in place to, to bubble in Winnipeg. That plan was looked upon favorably by Health Canada and those who were in charge of such things, the same kind of people who said, okay, Toronto have an NHL bubble. They liked what was happening in Winnipeg, thought it could be feasible. So uh, it, it, there's so much that's uncertain with the Canadian Football League through this now extended law, uh, long off season. It's really hard to predict what will happen here. Um, you know, my hope is, of course, as someone who loves the league more than anything else in professional sports, really, uh, is that uh, this can be a reset, that things can come back to somewhat normal, hopefully next season. But to be honest, Mike, does any, do any of us know when the world is going to be normal again, if it ever is? You know, so it's hard to say. Don Lander joining us, columnist at CFL.ca as we look ahead at the Canadian Football League. Don, we'll have maybe some lukewarm or people who aren't paying attention to the CFL saying, well, you know, if, if they're not playing, how are teams losing money? You know, how, did, how does that go hand in hand? It would seem like you were able to save money. What sorts of things are actually running up the bills for CFL teams? Do we know? Um, well, I mean, there's stadium debts, there's keeping the lights. I mean, you can't just, you know, fold the offices and close them down. They, they are employing people right now. The CFL has done a pretty good job in its member clubs of keeping people employed in the hopes that there could be a season. And so you're facing big layoffs here. That's, uh, that's how they will lose money, uh, or would be losing money with those salaries. So you're going to see people uh, getting getting let go uh, in the midst of this. Uh, there's also just no ticket sales, all right? So none. All of that money has to be refunded or can be. I know some fans are saying, just keep it until you have a season, then credit me then. But it's a lot of money that's going away. And 
the same on a smaller scale, but it's the same kind of thing with the CFL as with the NHL. The only reason we're seeing Stanley Cup playoffs right now, it's not this 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 vaunted, lofty notion that we've got to have a championship. It's money, huge amounts of television money. And while the CFL doesn't get a huge amount of uh, money, not like the NHL, obviously, there are millions and millions of dollars uh, are counted upon from the TSN contract. It would have been a smaller amount this year, but it still would have been money that was incoming. So you lose that income, too. Uh, and it makes a league that was, you know, uh, operating on shoestring budget, or, or I shouldn't say that. It's not a shoestring budget, but razor-thin margins. And in some markets, losing money makes it very difficult uh, going forward uh, because of those kinds of losses financially. Well, everybody's going to have a lot of Zoom meetings and try and figure out where the league goes yeah. from here. In the meantime, fans just have the kind of that empty feeling, don't they? Yeah, they do. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm heartbroken, but, um, you know, because this is a big part of my life and has been since I was a kid watching, you know, in my parents' living room with my dad, you know. So this, uh, even if you, you don't love the CFL, you, I'm sure you can understand that feeling. Just take whatever you love in the world of sports the most and imagine that you're not having a season, and imagine the possibility that hangs over you that it might go away forever. How would you feel about that? Then you know how I'm feeling today. That's it. Well, Don, at some point you and I are going to get together and we're going to talk about really happy things, and the CFL is going to be involved in those. Today may not be that day, but I appreciate the information. Thanks so much. Uh, I appreciate it too, Mike. Thanks a lot. You take care. Okay, take care. Be safe. That's Don Landry. Columnist at CFL.ca. And Don really does. He, you know, it, it's like you cut a Leaf fan and you bleed blue and white. You cut Don and he bleeds CFL. He really does. CFL and curling. And uh, he really does some great work on both of those both of those sports. And to think, you know, you, you don't have the CFL if this report turns out to be true. And there isn't a lot to suggest that it would not be true, but the inner workings already in motion for a cancellation of 2020 in the Canadian Football League. Has the feel of fall ever felt more ominous? Peter Pepper picked a heck of pickled peppers. It's not quite the same tongue twister, but you know what? It's uh, it's a brain twister. It is. Has the feel of fall ever felt more ominous? We don't necessarily know what the fall will bring, given some of the things we hear about this pandemic. Thinking back to March and when things were a lot less open air, what does it mean when we kind of go inside again? Because in this part of the world, that's inevitable. Three weeks from tomorrow, some school kids are going to be heading back to school. We don't know what staggered starts are going to look like, but... They're inside. What was the big question last week? Ventilation. You hear talk of humidity and what that means for the transmission of COVID-19. Let's talk to someone who knows a whole lot about what we could be facing and can give us some insight into what going back inside might mean. Dr. Tim Sly is a professor emeritus in the Faculty of Community Studies in the School of Occupational Health and Public Health at Ryerson University. Dr. Sly, thanks so much for taking some time for us. Good morning, Mike. Pleased to be here. It's great to have you here. It's it's impossible to predict exactly what's going on from forget week to week, month to month, but it seems day to day and hour to hour in this whole thing. But what do you think we need to know about the coming of fall 
in this pandemic? Well, what we've got is a, uh, I mean, a simple logistics, if you want to look at it, the number of uh, bodies per cubic meter of space, if you want to think of it like that. Uh, in the summer, we're out at uh, barbecues and parks and strolling through the forest and so on. But in the winter, we tend to conglomerate a bit closer to the bar and the restaurant and, and around the fireplace. And so there's a higher density of those bodies per cubic meter. So when that happens, of course, you know, you will begin to have an increased risk of transmission of things. So I think the secret here is really as we as we move into the fall, we've got to increase those barriers between people just to be doubly sure, those masks and the distancing and so on. And that comes down to kind of what we've learned all the way through. Uh, is Is this a case where if we're not really diligent, we're exposing ourselves to greater risk just because of the fact that we're all likely to head back inside when things get a little colder? Oh, yeah, there's been some brave souls who are suggesting you take a grade 5 class out for most of the day outside. I can't imagine that being uh, accepted by the grade 5 class in the middle of February with minus 21 degrees, you know. So to be realistic, uh, outside is a, is a good, better place to be than inside, but we've got to make uh, make allowances and make, uh, make plans for being inside, for sure, no question about it. Don't forget that, that, that even though this thing's been going on since the beginning of the year, uh, in Canada, you've got about 97-plus percent of the population is completely susceptible to it. No protection at all. And the virus is showing no signs of, of getting weaker or going away. And so even though the numbers are now nice and low and the, the daily rates are pretty almost invisible, uh, uh, that's great. But you, the analogy is much like a forest floor that's dry and crispy. You see, we've kept the campfires away, we've kept the cigarette the smokers away and the matches, but it's just waiting, just needs one match, and the whole lot goes back up again. That's, that's the situation we're in. Man, is that a great analogy. So the forest floor where, yeah, when things dry out, and look what happens when someone doesn't put out their campfire properly when someone tosses a cigarette into the old dry weeds late in the summer. Uh, that can get out of hand real fast. Just ask places like California and B.C., can't it? You don't have to go that far. Look, I was talking to a radio station in, in Saskatchewan not so long ago, and they were very pleased they only had a handful of cases or something in the province. And in the next week, uh, it, it, there was a big outbreak. It went just like a wildfire right through the community. But it wasn't Regina or Saskatoon. It was way in the north, Laloche, if you remember. And beautiful, pristine wilderness up there, a couple of uh, reservations up there, First Nations. But that's where it was. Who was it? A truck driver, a camper, a visitor, a day visitor. But that's what it took. The uh, same thing happened in uh, Kingston, Ontario. You remember they had, they had no cases at all for several weeks, and they were really pleased. And then suddenly they had 25 the following Monday uh, and a nail and hair salon. Just take one person to do that. Same in New Brunswick. You know. So it can happen anywhere. Dr. Tim Sly joining us, Professor Emeritus in the Faculty of Community Studies and the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. Dr. Sly, when we look at vaccines, obviously we've heard, you know, don't hold out a lot of hope for a quick vaccine. You don't necessarily want a quick vaccine. You want to make sure that this is not going to have any kind of side effects. And then we look to Russia, and Russia throws out Sputnik V, and they're ready to stick that into just about anybody. What do you make of that particular story? It's sort of par for the course. You know, Russia rather wants to be uh, 
seen to be the leader, the first in the field. It, it loves that, and so it is the first in the field uh, in this particular case. But is it worth it getting there without having gone through all the checks and balances? Vaccines are not just like taking an aspirin. I mean, this is they've they're on record. They're 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 down as having gone through phase one and two trials. But the big phase three trial where you tested on 25 to 30,000 people and you're looking for tiny, uh, tiny instances of allergies and, uh, and other side effects and whether the thing actually does work, that's apparently been missed. It's, it's gone, gone around that step completely. So uh, I, I wouldn't put my money on that one. I'll put my arm forward for that one. But certainly uh, there's, a, there's, there's about 125 vaccine candidates at the moment and about six are undergoing phase three trials, uh, three of them are leaders at the moment, and there's some really good results. What we don't know is how long the, the protection will last. Uh, it could be a month or two. It could be three, four, six months. Who knows? The best situation, I think, because I don't think this is just going to go away like SARS-1 did. That just disappeared back into the wildlife again. SARS-2 is already a pandemic. It's already established here. It's filtering into human populations. The best thing would happen, I think, if it, if it turned out to be something that could be controlled by a, an addition to the annual flu shot, right? You get, you'll end up with your, your two or three flu strains plus a shot of a yearly booster for a, a SARS-2. That would be an ideal situation. Well, let's hope that we can get to that point, and let's hope we can say, yeah, that, that protection lasts six months, even if we had to get one in the fall and one in the spring or whatever it happened to be. In terms of working toward a vaccine, you mentioned that there are hopeful candidates in all of this with kind of the world working on this, leading researchers working on this. Should we want to believe that that would expedite a, a proper vaccine that we would know everything about it, or are we still kind of being experimental if if we you know get it get it cleared, get it used, and and then have it going into the population? Oh, there's no question that uh, that the amount of uh, intelligence and experience being uh, being expressed on this particular project is, is, is unprecedented. We've never been like that before. Lots of times you have, you know, really good potential vaccines, but it costs so much to develop them, and it costs such an investment that they never really get to be finished. For example, the SARS-1 vaccine was had started the process, but to continue on, uh, particularly when the thing had disappeared, uh, we're seen to be pouring uh, hundreds of millions of dollars into something that may not come back again. And in fact, it hasn't come back in the last 16, 17 years. Uh, oddly enough, though, one of the strains of the SARS-1 vaccine was regenerated and sort of adapted into what we're looking now is the SARS-2 virus. But, um, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, uh, there's a, such a need at the moment that there's such a lot of intelligence going into this that we're going to get well, some really good results. And there's about four different kinds, totally different kinds of vaccines. And some of them are showing some really good results in, in non-human primates, too. Some of the macaque uh, apes are showing very good antibody resistance. What we don't know so far is just how long that's going to last. There's one hopeful bit on the horizon, too, is that there seems to be a, a likelihood that we might have some residual protection from other coronaviruses. 
you know, there's about four coronaviruses. We've been we've been with us now for for decades at least, and that's in the common cold. About 15% of the common cold is caused by distant relatives of these coronaviruses, and we might actually have a little bit of of uh, immunity from that stuff coming through what we call the T cell immunity. And this may account, just a wild speculation, it may account for why little kids uh, don't seem to, they, have, they pick up the virus, but they don't seem to have the disease this time around. And that might be explained by the fact that kids have always got colds. <laughs> and that if anybody's going to have exposure to lots of colds in a year, it may be little kids, and that might be where some protection comes in. It's purely speculation, no, nothing to back it up at the moment, but it's just one of those hopeful little glimmers of light. We love hope. We love glimmers of light. Dr. Sly, thank you for providing us with those as we close out. Really appreciate your insight. Stay safe, Mike. Bye-bye. That is Dr. Tim Sly from Ryerson University. He's a professor emeritus and an epidemiologist. Love that forest floor analogy. How great is that to think, okay, yeah, we've got a forest floor. It's later in the summer. Everything is dried out. You just got to make sure you're not the one that flicks the cigarette butt down on it. You got to make sure that you're not the one that leaves the campfire going, that you drop that lit match just because, what, you're walking along lighting matches? If you're doing that, you should see someone. You should talk to someone about the, the impulse to walk around lighting matches and dropping them on the ground. But you get the analogy. I love it. I think that's fantastic, and that's kind of what we have to look at in all of this. And as far as vaccines go, yeah, there's a lot of candidates, a lot showing promise. Who knows what the next little while is going to bring. Privacy is always a concern. You read into what China would love to do. They would love to know where everybody in their country is at all times and be able to allow certain ones to do certain things based on how politically volatile they are. You know, they had enough information going, as some reports state, that they would give a color code to someone during the height of their pandemic and and dealing with COVID-19 in order to know whether or not that person could ride public transit. That's that's kind of the opportunity that we all have. We have that digital double. And someone we've been talking to about things like digital doubles for a long time is Dr. Thomas Cook. And we're lucky enough to have him back with us right now so that we can talk not just about digital doubles, but about what's going on with the Canada Revenue Agency and a breach and certainly what apps can actually learn about you. Because, you know, it's, it's one thing to just download everything you want. It's another thing to make sure that you know what it is they're finding out about you. Dr. Cook is a privacy ethics and internal threat assessment manager at the Center for Advanced Computing and uh, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada postdoctoral fellow at the Surveillance Studies Center at Queen's University. Dr. Cook, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation once more, Mike. Maybe we could just start with a definition. It's been a long time since we've talked digital double, and I know years and years ago you and other colleagues would spend some time during the day Googling things that you had no interest in just to make sure that you were adding extra protection to yourself. You have great memory. That's really impressive. That's always stuck out to me. Always stuck out to me. And it's probably the nature of the experiment, the content of it really that I think is standing out in your mind's eye. So just to give a quick anecdote, um, when I was 
a teaching assistant at York University when I was doing my PhD there. Um, <laughs> I had these classes that were very interactive. And uh, one of the things that I, I developed was um, this kind of like open form activity where my students could track my my footprint on the internet. And one of the things that I, I had them do was follow a kind of anonymous profile on Facebook. And I used to visit mylittlepony.com on multiple computers using that account regularly. And my Facebook newsfeed would just fill up with, you know, the hot summer deal, 25% off on rainbow unicorn painted pony special edition 2016. And my students would howl and cry and laugh at it. But, you know, the the darkness in, in the comedy is, is kind of interesting, right? Because the the instant I would go to mylittlepony.com and they have a new sale on, it would immediately show up in my newsfeed. So, yes, data double exploration is something that we have been experimenting with for a few years, to say the least. But it takes some doing, it takes some time, it takes some discipline, and it's something not a lot of people will do. So you start searching around for, hey, I'm thinking about buying a new hammer. Next thing you know, you've got offers that appear for days and days and days. Look at your Instagram feed. You know, that that search filter will know not just what you're searching on Instagram. It'll basically know what, what you're searching on your phone. And next thing you know, I haven't even done that, but there's... There's something on my Instagram search that uh, is offering up whatever it was I was searching online. So wild things when we think about it that way. We're going to talk more about what apps can find out about us and what sorts of things we do need to know. But one of the big, big stories today, Dr. Cook, is the Canada Revenue Agency going down and expecting its services to be offline, it looks like, until Wednesday because hackers grabbed some stolen usernames, stolen passwords, and they were trying to fraudulently obtain government services. What When you see something like this, what do you think of? Well, I, I think about the conversation that we started off with. Automated data collection, um, just anything that's automated that can scrape the Internet for any data or information that could be leveraged to learn uh, about someone, in the case of a data bubble, or to gain entry to uh, an otherwise inaccessible system to learn more information about somebody. And that's precisely what has happened here. It's not even really that the hackers broke into the CRA system per se. Um, the, the onus of responsibility is, is kind of teetering a little bit between the CRA and the users themselves. So what ended up happening was um, these hackers used a, a technique called credential stuffing. And it, it's actually very simple. The idea is that you, you build a list of usernames that are very common, you know. So, um, well, I'm not going to use my example. That's a really bad idea. <laughs> but uh, let's say uh, Joe Smith. Joe Smith likes to build uh, email accounts and accounts for Rogers online, and he uses the same login, login for everything. It's, it's J Smith, J Smith Jr., J Smith Sr., whatever. So what they do is they, they collate. These hackers collated a list of all of the most common login names, and then they did the same thing for the most common passwords. And I, I got to be honest with you, Mike, it's still shocking to me in 2020 that people still use passwords like password or one, two, one, two three, three, four, four, five. Yeah, exactly. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Maybe add an exclamation mark in there. But I mean, there, there's massive compendiums on the internet. You can go on Google and find them. Uh, you know, documents that you can download that show. 50,000 of the most commonly used passwords. And that's all these, these hackers did. 
was they just fed the CRA's website with common logins and common passwords. And they just kept rotating through different combinations through an automated process until they were able to gain entry 5,500 times. So as much as this is indeed about the CRA needing to tighten up their cybersecurity measures to prevent this kind of thing, I really do think a big takeaway here is that we need to stop using common logins and passwords. Yeah, because obviously they were able to get in over 5,000 times. But when you are, let's say, an entity like the Canada Revenue Agency, you would have hopefully some, some firewalls, some safety features in there. Once they're in place, how do you know if someone's kind of chipping away at it? Is it up to them to say, you know, this has been around for three months now. Maybe maybe we better change something. It, it, would that help? I, I think employing some competent IT people would be a good start. I mean, I'm sorry if that sounds um, uh, terse or, or rude or condescending. No, I don't think. But, You're in the industry, so... Uh, yeah, it's just, just that I guess part of the reason why I hesitate to pass judgment, Mike, is because so many people in IT services capacities are completely overloaded. Uh, I, I talk to my own IT uh, support staff on an almost daily basis at our centers, and uh, the amount of things that they have to shoulder is absolutely wild. And in a lot of situations, they're having to do cybersecurity things that they're not trained to do. Um, now, that being said, there is no excuse at the government level. If you're a massive entity that's dealing with hundreds of millions of dollars, you can afford to be looking online actively with one staff member, making sure that the latest research on how to use two-factor authentication or encouraging users to have certain requirements for password length or, you know, emailing them four times a year saying it's time for you to renew your password and login and change things up. It's, that's not hard to do. It's 2020. These are simple things. So um, I would really like to think that the CRA is hiring more staff right now. Well, let's hope. We are talking with Dr. Thomas Cook right now on London Live as we look at a few things, and now we're going to get back into apps and what they know about all of us. Dr. Cook is a privacy, ethics, and internal threat assessment manager at the Center for Advanced Computing as well as the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada postdoctoral fellow at the Surveillance Studies Center at Queen's University. So when it comes to apps and what they know, we got into this about a week ago when looking at the COVID alert app and the idea that obviously, you know, the, the throngs are not downloading this thing so maybe they're a little bit concerned about what it is that could be found out about them but you had said at the time we've got all kinds of apps on our phone that are finding out all kinds of things about us so why might we be a little concerned about the government wanting us to download one when you know willie's worm shop wanted me to and yeah sure i've downloaded that and i have no idea what information willie's worm shop is going to get about me <laughs> yes if every app on our phone was open source, I would be able to tell you exactly what's at stake, but they're not. And what I mean by that, Mike, is that apps are proprietary. They are, you know, the bread and butter of certain design studios or private sector entities that spend a lot of time crafting an app that produces massive revenue for them, either by, uh, you know, interacting with a user, a, a client that is making purchases on the app or that they're marketing that data out. 
whatever the case may happen to be, they just don't like to reveal the guts of how they're doing it because that's how they make money. Um, but that being said, open source does refer to apps that are designed where people can go in and audit the code. And this is something that my colleagues and I do quite regularly. We check apps, the ones that are open source, just to see how they work. And what's great about open source apps is that the people who design them are very, very transparent and they do it because they want to demonstrate that they're committed to uh, being accountable and, uh, you know, they prioritize trust with the people that they're working with. Um, now, when you have other kinds of apps like Pokemon Go or Google Maps and things like that, it's almost impossible to know what exactly is going on. And to make things even more complicated, Mike, um, I think the discourse on privacy and apps is really, really outdated. And what I mean by that is that there's there's a stream of knowledge and discussions and ideas out there about what privacy looks like on an application. And the one thing that I keep seeing come up that I think is so misleading is permissions. If you give your app permission to use your microphone, if you give your app permission to look at your email, you authorize that application to use that mic or that email. And the discourse on app privacy and permission says, as long as you grant permission to the app to do that thing, then, you know, you essentially have lost your right to the data. They can do whatever they want. I find this particularly misleading. And the reason why is because once you give permission to an app to access something like a microphone, there are potentially hundreds, if not thousands, of different algorithms or bundles of them in what are called APIs that can use the microphone in different ways to collect data. So it's not just the idea that a microphone simply listens in the background. One of those APIs or algorithms could program the mic and the software to only listen to certain frequencies at certain times of the day, to try to identify specific kinds of voices and exclude others. So when you give an application permission, you're actually granting a company in Google or Apple the permission to build all sorts of new micro-oriented techniques and different ways of pulling data. And the limit is their own creativity. And that's the kind of thing that we're losing when we talk about privacy and permissions. We need to be able to see exactly what APIs and algorithms app developers, Google and Apple are using together to create new insights about things like email and microphones. Interesting. Well, those are certainly things to pay attention to because a lot of apps will ask that now. They want to use your camera. They want to use all of those things. So this is a conversation that uh, will continue. Thank you so much for having this part of it, Dr. Cook, and all the best. Keep safe. My pleasure. Take care, London. We'll talk to you soon. That is Dr. Thomas Cook from Queen's University as we talk about security and privacy and CRA. So it's not like someone has gone and stolen your identity, but if you have what is a common name and you use a very common password, they may have been able to get into your account. And that comes down to don't use one two three four five six seven. Don't use one two three four five six seven exclamation mark and think, yeah, well, I've got it now. Or using the word password for a password. It's still happening. And I know it's part of trying to remember passwords. But at the same time, 
we're we're in a world where you've got to shift that password around. You got to make changes to it. You got to figure out a system. There are apps that can help you out with that. But in order to keep yourself and your info safe, that's just the world we live in. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from one to three. 